Welcome to the Mad River Anthology. I'm Tim Ayers. Piante Gallery in Eureka hosted a reading in October based on their exhibition titled Picture Poems, which combine poetry and fine art. On this program, we listen to highlights of that reading featuring Jim Dodge, Leslie Castellano, Anthony Lucero, Jerry Martin, and Charlotte Painter. this evening. Uh, we're celebrating a sort of unusual collaboration of poets and visual artists and most of the poets involved are here to read for you. So it's very simple. We're just going to go in alphabetical order <laughs> and listen to our friends read. And first up is Jim Dodge. Well thank you all for uh, coming out. Yeah, I'll start with the uh, poem that's actually in the show uh, and one that remains true to this day. It's called Decomposition. I don't know and I don't know what to do about it. I simply hit a point where I lost heart for judgments and was swept into the voluptuous harrowing complexities composing a single breath. And that is paired with uh, Libby's wonderful drawing. Here's a poem I haven't read in a long time, but it is about uh, art, uh, which seemed appropriate somehow to me. Uh, it's called <laughs> Magic and Beauty. Uh, and it has a long uh, epigraph uh, from uh, some French writer named Georges Batet, who said, man was able to exert and sometimes enforce his will upon nature, but he could do nothing to ensure the hunter's success. The capture, it seemed, depended upon something beyond the scope of work or technique, upon some other world whence man was shut out, at least while working while well imbued with the motions and rhythms of logical efficacy. So, um, and then there's a reference to the Cape Haines at Lascaux, which I assume most of you are familiar with, primitive art. And it addresses the question, uh, why do things have to, do things have to be beautiful? Um, the cave paintings at Lascaux are unnecessarily beautiful though perhaps magic to enjoin makes beauty a necessity. But since magic resides in the act itself, in the expropriation of the moment, we must imagine the hunters rising at dawn and walking into the earth. Each carries in a stone vessel a single color 
beaten from root or barren, a gift of the sun. Perhaps they've fasted and kept silent and sat naked under the stars. And now their dreams preceding them may be chanting to prepare their hearts. They walk deep into the cave and gather in the torch-flickered, glittering gallery where each, in turn, will be lifted, reason to appease the strength and elegance of his prey, to touch his fear, his hunger, his heart, to know, as the hand does not hesitate in the sweep of the bison's horn, that magic requires nothing, it's like stone, and the beauty called through our bodies remains in our bones. Yeah, you never know if they're going to be funny, huh? <laughs> uh, all right. These are some recent solstice uh, poems I thought I would read. This one is called Practical Spiritual Practice. Um, when I complimented the old master on his superb condition at 85, clear vitality in step and eye, he bowed his brief thanks, then leaned closer to confide just above a whisper right after Hiroshima, the laws of karma being what they are, I figured in some future time, such a bomb would fall on us. So I took up yoga. I'll have 60 years of practice soon and rarely miss the day. Because I'm not a master, I had to ask him why. Well, he leaned closer, when it's bombs away on us, I want to be able to kiss my poor doomed ass goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's practical spiritual practice. <laughs> Charming answer. Uh, all right. Here's one called A Charm Against Tough Winners. And I just have that feeling. Maybe I always have that feeling this time of year that this may be a tough winner. Um, when people first received this poem, they all thought my wife had uh, breast cancer again. No. This references a lot of time and space, so let me assure you things are going well. I rub my wife's back as she kneels, arms around the toilet bowl, puking her guts out from chemo for breast cancer. I rub my son's back so tense it's trembling as he vomits in the kitchen sink, the flu bug hitting so hard and fast he couldn't make it to the bathroom. I rub my dog's back as he gags and shakes and finally yaks up the superrating squirrel carcass I warned him not to eat, <laughs> which seems so delectable he growled when I tried to take it. I rub their backs, murmur assurances that all will be all right, crack bad hurl jokes to lift their spirits, like I don't think Ralph's gonna return your call, and help clean up the mess. 
I rub their backs and tender them my best because they do the same for me. Except my dog, of course, who humps my leg, which I take as twisted gratitude, though it may be addled lust. Not that it matters. All loving touch leads us to that deep and true regard we feel for each other when we really care and keep cleaning up the mess we make of it. Oh. <laughs> uh, let me end with the uh, uh, most recent solstice poem. Uh, it's called The Sanctuary of Light. Uh, and I think it's self-explanatory. I don't think there's any little illusion you need to know that I'm aware of anyway. So the sanctuary of light, when pressed, stressed, fearful, unsure, simply slip back to the composing core of what you were, will be, and eternally are. Pure energy vibrating between particle and wave. On the vibratory plane, you are safe, secure, free of oblivion sucking roar, as well as the daily plague of civil farce and friction that wears you down and out. Return to light and the pavilions of rue and ruin fall away. No tweakers twitching for a fix, nobody angling on your ass, no finagles to get rich quick, no trading bangles for rivers damned, no politicians, shit riffs of mangled diction to scam more money to green the bankers' lawns, to build more slammers, missiles, tanks, and bombs, no more traffic tangles, toxic air, acid rain, whole oceans turn cesspools with the crap of human consumption. No brains jangled dumb with jingles, no child's belly distended with hunger, no souls burned bitter with cynicism, no love spoiled as it's spoken, no promise broken, no haters or hating or hate. Tear open the locked doors, smash the state. Pour through yourself and return to life. On the vibratory plane, all you have to do is vibrate. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. You're welcome. Next, we have Leslie Castellano. How about it? Distracted by shiny things, Ichabod and human run circles around nowhere, saying, How's it going? Marshmallows and space guns in the hands of these young'uns shoot rays of soft whippersnap, neon and heroic. Through space, dentine and tonguey, two heroes quite stoic fall in the deep nothing where all has fallen silent, except echoes come again. This is the one in the show. Words made of shadows Find a hole here, dig a grave, for that which was, half dying, half rabbit. Blood stains your heart, half gone, away from this hill, 
its burnt-out house, innocent, hiding in walls of smoke. She's lingering. Half here, didn't run, but rabbit, wanna run, wanna now, oh. But she pauses, raises up on her haunches to catch the scent of what she cannot see. Half rabbit. Omen of things gone, omen of yesterday. Ghosts wanna find your feet in the shadows because you're too still in the sun, in the sun. A short one. Off Frost crossed herself, whispered to the little elf, sent spring come running in. <laughs> um, two more. Alphabet, alphabet C, and biscuit boats, for a baby hungry, slurping milk gravy from the moon, the wild moon. Got carried away, that baby, on the shoulders of an ox in a craze, cause the hill sure does roll away, like rocks that thunder while a maybe dog scampers, hungry for watermelon, marmalade, and delicacies in a dream of the day of the sounds before words. Waiting for the passage of the breaking time, when we are silent together and hallowed, aware that something better is coming, do I dare say now, even while waiting? I know that we will make love today, tomorrow, no later than the day after that, because our bodies need to know one another, because we are joy and not joy, the feeling of wanting, a necessity we have built like a ship set upon a hill where the wind is salty and wet. A necessity as extravagant and immediate as our blood. And we wait, knowing we will be carried away as soon as the ocean comes. We have Anthony Lucero. Hello. So I've actually never read before. Um, I was excited to be a part of the Picture Poem Show, but so if I break into a cold sweat up here, <laughs> forgive me. Um, the first poem is about a little witch. Little witch, were your hair any less golden, you'd be a flower. Were your hat any less black, you'd be a star. Were your boots any less barefoot, I'd hear the waves break in your heart. Little witch, I don't know where you come from and I don't know where you go, but the answer is more important than dreams and God and sunshine. The answer is more important than death and love and promises. Little witch, the answer is the answer to the question we never ask. We can know to ask that doesn't exist, the question I'm asking you now. One down. <laughs> God is looking through a straw at earth people, and earth people are looking at God through telescopes. <laughs> Neither can see the other. They can only see what looks like stars. Some people are sleeping, and they are the gentlest stars. And some people are making love, and they are the brightest stars. 
and some people are being born and they are falling stars and some people are watching TV and they of course are not very bright in the TV. <laughs> there are all kinds of stars, too many to mention on both sides of the fence. God can only be seen from behind because he is always doing two things at once, but he's at least as many stars as we are. Earth people give the stars names like Nebula and Venus and Black Hole. God does not name the stars, he just wonders upon them. Earth people give themselves names, they like to name things. When earth people wonder, they are the closest stars of all. When they murder, they disappear. When they die, they reappear. When they fall in love, they flower. We had wings like blue mountains with snow on top, and we had feet like flowers buried in the snow, and we had eyes made of mush, for we had seen love come and go like stars. And we stood there face to face, half naked, half starved, holding each other's backs as if they were our own. A child walks by, half naked, half starved, on our way to the zoo. The bottom half is starved, the top half is naked. The left half is starved, the right half is naked. The front half is starved, the back half naked. She has no name. We go on holding each other like a duck and a balloon on their way home from the zoo. It is snowing. I loved you for longer than spaghetti sticks to a wall. <laughs> I loved you longer than a rabbit is tall, a jackrabbit with big long ears. I loved you for all the wrong reasons and for none at all. Out there in the golden darkness with the fairies and the crows, drunken fairies make drunken rainbows, of course they do. Inside with the raccoons, drunken fairies make drunken possums, don't they? <laughs> inside out there on the golden rooftops, not an angel in sight, drunk as can be inside, inside of you always. We climbed the holy mountain backwards in top hat and bare feet, carrying child and lives went wrong the right way. Little gypsy bones, Nina called you, who was up ahead near the top on bad knees. I'm right here, she says. That's where I am now, pointing to her eyes with her eyes. It was never supposed to lead to paradise. If you thought so, you were wrong out there inside the golden darkness with the fairies and the crows who were drunken and the raccoons and the rainbows. That coyote there is the son of God, actually. Why not? He's taking us to his favorite tree where all things begin and go to hell where all things blossom drunkenly. I'm so excited because this is my last poem. <laughs> Strange approach to a poetry reading, but <laughs> and it's a short one. <laughs> Close to cigar smoke in a pond of neon starfish in your witch's boots and nothing but moonlight all the way up to God. after I 
did this uh, collaboration with Carol on the Spotted Owl poem, I had a bunch of climate change poems. <laughs> Just this to a northern spotted owl. I want to thank Carol for encouraging this collaboration and for to Piante. And, um, this comes. This was written in a campground in Oregon. From the meadow, a dark shape, soundless, rises into the Douglas fir beside my tent, the branch bending with her weight. Last night, around the fire, naturalists and nature writers doing owl calls. I try the basic five-hoot greeting. She turns her head a fraction of how far it could turn, <laughs> regards me, opens her wings, glides one tree over to an empty campsite. <laughs> White dappled, woods dark, feathers upturned at the tips for silence. Her temperature, the owl man said, depends on where she is in the canopy. She wears the forest. Warm and dry in the treetop, cool and wet down here where she hunts. She swoops onto the meadow, strikes, rises with empty talons, returns to the forest edge. Besides mice and voles and canopy, she requires a new cavity in an old tree every year. Baby owls, like humans, leave a big mess. <laughs> what she gets is industry talking higher rates of rotation, lower percents of retention with buffer zones and off-season campgrounds. Exile in our own land. When winter comes colder and summer's broiling hot, we'll all wish we had a forest to wear. <laughs> so this last poem is called After the Crash inspired by Demolition Derby Night at the Modoc County Fair. <laughs> Climate change. It's a perfect summer evening for destruction. The cows and the cowboys have had their fun. Everyone's been stuffed with barbecue and hot dogs and tilt the world. The beer is flowing. The stadium is packed. The fire department is standing by with two trucks and an ambulance. The water truck has soaked the arena so the cars can't quite get enough traction to actually kill anybody. One by one, to cheers and applause, they come spinning and careening onto the field. Fire blasts and roars straight up from the engine so the drivers can hardly see where they're going and no one can hear a thing. Mud is thrown in all directions. The crowd loves it. At last, all 16 cars are in place people and machines raring to go. When the announcer asks for applause, he gets it. <laughs> In the black and green 78 Fairlane wagon, number 87, Johnny Darkness. 
Hurrah, go Johnny. Number 13, Amanda Trueheart in her maroon 76 Mercury Marquee. Yay, Amanda, we love you. The loudest applause goes to a pair of late model white Chevys put up by the Save the Hospital campaign. All the nation's money has gone into the Crusades and offshore accounts, so its remote little towns try to raise a few dollars with carnival rides and cotton candy, and if they're lucky, a little destruction they could live with. <laughs> it's a ritual sacrifice of the things for which America sacrifices every day without acknowledgement. Oil, steel, burning rubber, smoke and flames and sirens going off. Wait. Sirens are going off. For a moment, the crashing and smashing stops. Fire trucks rush onto the field. They douse the flames. The car still runs. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> then the destruction resumes. Now the loudest applause is for the biggest crash. The one from all the way across the arena that rips off half a car. Everyone yells for Johnny. Everyone loves Amanda more than ever. The save the hospital cars are torn to pieces. The crowd doesn't care. Johnny wins, Amanda wins. Half the people in the crowd win something in the intermission drawing. A night at the spa, a case of motor oil, a manicure, $25 worth of groceries, the $1,000 grand prize is divided among the survivors. <laughs> it was better than the Iraq war. No one died. Admission was only $8. When we get down to the last gallon of gas and the last beat up cars, this is how we'll burn it. of an anomaly here because I'm more of a prose writer. Um, but I did write a few lines. Um, when I first moved here, the new segment of the Hammond Trail was just opening. I came here to be near my wonderful son, the photographer Tom Voorhees. is <laughs> on this middle wall inside. And um, I said to him, you know, You've been taking pictures of this trail now for 15 years. Why don't you put it together, you know, make something of it? And he said, oh, mom. And then he said, wait, I'll do it if you write the text for it. A trap. <laughs> but there's a lesson in it. Never give your grown children advice. <laughs> So the project is called Ghosts of the Hammond Trail. We see it as kind of ghost-like, appropriately, this is Halloween time, right? But we're going to keep going on and on because around where we live, it's always ghostly. Starting with the bridge at the, at the beginning of the trail and the endless fog. And so I see the fog as inhabited with the ghosts of the people who were taken away when the settlers came. The settlers 
Um, I'm sure I don't need to remind anybody here about the um, massacre of the Wiat on uh, Gunther Island, um, um, right at the mouth of the Mad River, which is the, one of the photographs inside, um, is where they lived, they and several other tribes. And um, I began to read a lot and find poems uh, by other people and to sort of write a few myself. Um, the one that is inside um, is actually taken from an MA thesis by Thomas Gates called Along the Ridge Lines. He's a, um, a Yurok. And he talks a lot, has a lot of insight about what trails mean in our lives and what the path is all about. And um, he also had this little anecdote about intertribal romance, a legend of lover's tryst. So I adapted it into a little rhyme. <clears throat> a man from upriver went by boat to meet a woman below. She laid a path of stones to the water and so would leave no footprint. Here's um, a, a found poem. I guess it's really a fake found poem. <laughs> Prospector's Notes. How to start a gold mine. Pick the mouth of a little river. If Indians live there, tear down the shacks. They will go away. If not, look out for bounties, 250 a scalp. Get a strong hydraulic hose to spew quicksilver into the water. It will gather your gold, but leave it behind for future generations. And how to salt a dead mine. Does everybody know what salting a mine means? You, it, it means disguising it so that it looks as if it's still profitable. How to salt a dead mine. First, stake out a buyer. Show it to him after you do the following. Get your shotgun, load it with a handful of gold flakes. Blast the mine high enough that the glitter shakes into the water. It will look so pretty. <laughs> Listening to highlights of the picture poem reading at Piante Gallery in Eureka, featuring Jim Dodge, Leslie Castellano, Anthony Lucero, Jerry Martin, and Charlotte Painter. Music that night was provided by Olin Howabouten and Walken Schweiger. This has been the Mad River Anthology. I'm Tim Ayers. If you have questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. On our blog and online archive of past programs can be found at madriveranthology.wordpress.com. The show is also available in iTunes.
The Mad River Anthology airs the second and fourth Sundays of the month at 10 p.m. and is produced for KHSU, located at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California.